Welcome to Poppin' Off, a special episode of Bubbles and Books, where we pop off with some of the most interesting, intelligent, wonderful, amazeballs people in our community. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Poppin' Off. We are joined today by a very special guest, Joyce McIntosh, Assistant Program Director at the Freedom to Read Foundation. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for coming. And we are also joined by our very own Tanvi Rostogi, uh, dog-eared bookseller, children and teen librarian, and founder of the nonprofit Good Books Young Troublemakers, which aims to engage kids in practicing allyship using books as the springboard for those conversations. Hi, Tanvi. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Joyce. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, so we're going to be talking like all things book bans today, and we hope that our listeners will come away feeling equipped and empowered to advocate for access to books in their own communities. So founded in 1969, the Freedom to Read Foundation is a national nonprofit legal and educational organization affiliated with the American Library Li Library Association. Um, Joyce, can you tell us a little bit about the foundation's history and your mission? Absolutely. Um, so we are closely affiliated with the American Library Association but we're separated in one way. So we focus on the First Amendment and the right of librarians to share and patrons to receive information, because that's the one thing that our public libraries are set out to do. Um, and we do this work through education, litigation, and advocacy. And the one word that would separate us there from the American Library Association and other organizations would be litigation. So we have the ability as a separate organization to focus more heavily on the First Amendment. We absolutely join briefs and write briefs and continue the work of fighting for First Amendment rights on behalf of librarians in the courts. In this last year and a half, we've done more than we've done for many years on that front. Um, I'm excited to be part of this organization. It's actually my dream job. I, I loved working as a public librarian, but I focused on intellectual freedom and working with librarians and helping librarians on that front uh, for over a decade now. So I'm thrilled to be part of this organization. And I also work directly with the American Library Association offering challenge support for librarians who are going through these struggles right now um, and uh, coordinating our speaking engagements such as this. That's wonderful. Thank you for the work that you do. It's so important. It's always been important, but it's especially important now. Um, so book banning has always, I mean, it's always been around. It's always been a thing. Um, you know, I remember growing up, have, there's like banned book week or banned book day. And um, it's something you hear about. And it always was, the conversation always seemed to revolve around like what we think of as the classics that maybe you would be taught in high school. Um, Catcher in the Rye, Fahrenheit 451, stuff like that. Um, but it feels really different right now. Um, the efforts that we're seeing and the kinds of books that are being challenged. Um, so it feels unprecedented. Is it unprecedented? It is 
absolutely unprecedented. If I were to show all of you a graph right now, it would look like a hockey stick. It would be like this, it would be running around 400 to 500 challenges a year from say, you know, 2003 until 2019, it would just be flat. And in 2020, challenges went down to like 156 because everything was focused on mask mandates during the pandemic. That's where the energy went. I sort of hoped the topic wouldn't come up again, but no, <laughs> um, as soon as groups were done with mask mandates, we skyrocketed. So in 2021, the ALA Office for Intellectual Freedom recorded 729 reported challenges. And those are only the ones that are reported. Bearing in mind, this is where people, librarians took the time to fill out the form and say, this is happening here. Or to fill out the form and say, I, I would like help with this here. Um, so in some ways, it may be a drop in the bucket number, uh, believe it or not. So 2021, 729 challenges. In 2022, we had 1,269 reports. Wow. That's where the hockey stick just goes straight up. Joyce, so, can absolutely. I ask you, is it? Um, preferable to the organization to have people report those challenges to you? Because I know like all of the ones that I've weathered, I don't think they were actually officially filed. It absolutely is. Thank you for asking. Um, because reporting is anonymous. You You can just say, this is anonymous. We're never going to call up your manager and say, hey, we heard this happen. Um, the reason it's important is because then we understand what's happening throughout the country, where it's happening, what titles or materials are being challenged, and then we can see what effect that will have and how we should address it. So those statistics are so helpful and important. Anvi, I'm wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about some of your experience with book challenges. Um, maybe like, what did that process look like? Um, how did that feel for you? Because I don't know that a lot of people understand what librarians, um, are trying to do and what kind of barriers they come up against. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So, um, I've been, or I was in the library world, um, for over 15 years and I weathered some challenges very early in my career. Um, so this would have been back in New Jersey and those challenges looked drastically different than anything that I have experienced in the past like five or six years. Um, one of the main differences was that early in my career, a challenge was brought by a single person. Um, you know, they were upset, but it wasn't like this huge, um, you know, it wasn't like this big like community controversy, right? Like they would come, they'd be like, I don't like something in this particular book. Um, you know, often it was something that was very specific to that particular patron. So it wasn't like now, like, you know, it's like every queer book we're pulling off our shelf and every book that's about racism we're pulling off our shelf. So one of the ones in New Jersey was actually, um, there was this picture book series called The Miss Spider Books. And um, in one of the Miss Spider picture books, there's like an illustration of Miss Spider and like, I don't know, her boyfriend or something, which was like some other insect. 
and someone was upset that it seemed to be promoting um cohabitation before marriage and so they filled out all of the paperwork and we you know we went through the process and the process was basically um you look at reviews of the book so those are professional reviews they're reviews on like goodreads and amazon um, and you put together a whole package for your board and the board looks at both the community members complaint and then they look at um, you know, all of these reviews that have been produced by a wide range of different people, and then they make their decision based on that. Um, and so it didn't feel like there was a lot of passion, right? So now I feel like when there's challenges, there's all of this passion behind it. Um, you know, it's not that I disagree with this content in this book. It's like, I am protecting every child that lives in the United States of America by pulling this one book off of the shelf. Um, and so it does feel different now because um, people try to make you feel bad about yourself, right? For doing your job before it was like, you're a librarian, I don't like that book. But now it's like, you're a pedophile, you're harming, you know, America's children, you're harming the kids in our community. Um, and there's just a lot more emotional investment in it now. Um, I forgot the whole rest of your question, so I apologize. No, that was that was it. Um, it was really just I was really wondering just how things had changed and how they feel different yeah. and what your experience was like. Um, Joyce, is what Tommy's saying about sort of how the trajectory of these challenges does that ring true for you and some of the things that you're seeing? Tommy, you just described it perfectly, absolutely perfectly. So. Um, when I'm talking about these days, I feel like we've gone from challenge 1.0, whereas Tanvi noted, you will have maybe one parent or person come to you and say, I don't like Harry Potter. It's witchcraft. We're going to go to hell if we read it, get rid of it. And you'd have a conversation with the person about the values of the public library, that we provide access to information for every single patron, age one to 100, and that this gives you the right to choose what's right for your family. So you had that one-on-one -on -one conversation. Then we sort of escalated to 2.0, where large or well-organized groups come in and well-funded groups come in and say, as Tanvi noted, they're, they're getting angry with the library board members, the librarian, the school board of trustees, and they're saying, we want everything related, you know, it could be sharing challenges to 10 books, 100 books, 200 books, even if you don't have those in your library, and saying, well, we want everything related to race or people of color or everything with LGBTQ content off the shelves. And it's pure viewpoint discrimination at that point. It's not, you know, it's not covered in the First Amendment. They are acting outside of the law when they try to do this. And then now we're at challenges 3.0, where now censorship is being legislated in many states. So the, um, yeah, the pressure has risen, the appearance of challenges has changed. But what I want to note, um, with your listeners is that uh, what Tanvi described is still happening. So now librarians need to be prepared 
for any range of this. And it, it's uh, hard to be in that pressure cooker. I cannot imagine being on the ground right now. Um, and I think it's important for librarians and library supporters and our educators and students to be able to talk about the common sense uh, positive information here. Like our teachers are providing the best materials for our students. They're not going to put anything in that school library that's obscene pornographic or harmful to minors. They're going to put books that are age appropriate and fun and educational and our public librarians are providing so much. Those store and and our and our small bookstores, right? You're providing the fun materials, the story times, the opportunities for discussion and meeting, and all those positive things. It's just so critical to have that on our minds when we get up in the morning to know that we do all this and it's all positive. I think right. one of the things that's changed too is like 15 years ago, people weren't getting on like Facebook, right? Um, to talk about the books that they don't like at the public library or in their school library. And um, so the, the challenges that I've weathered here in Ames were not about books, they were about programs. Um, and so, you know, you, you have your Facebook event for your program and all of a sudden someone in Texas or, um, Florida or some other state really far away has it on their radar. Um, and it's just spreading across the country. Um, so what was really fascinating about those those challenges here in Ames was that they rarely started in Ames. They actually started in other states and then they made their way over to Iowa. And it was like it'd make its way over to eastern Iowa and then to central Iowa and then to Ames. And the people in Ames then could get really riled up because they can see that people across the country are really riled up about something that's happening here locally. Um, and so it's just this fire that spreads much more quickly. Um, it's a fire that doesn't actually have to start in your own community. Um, and it, it, it places even more pressure than on the people navigating it because you're navigating it from, from, I mean, literally all around you, right? Far, far and near. That does seem to be the case. I mean, you look at like a lot of these titles that we're seeing that are being challenged specifically in school libraries. It's like the same, but all across the country, it's the same books. It's like someone somewhere decided this book is worth banning. And then, like you said, stoked the fire. And now we're talking about banning that same book on the other side of the country. Like that's not a coincidence. Um, it's people being told these are books that we don't like and then kind of parroting that information. Kind a of moment. Related. Can I make a contribution? Sorry. Yes. My very, yeah. un, my very uninformed opinion uh, contributing to this conversation, just an observation of change, is the performance element of these book bans that make me wonder, why do people feel like they have time to waste doing this? Like, don't they have something better to do with their time? Uh, like Joyce was saying, 
focus on the positive that you can do in the world rather than breaking people down, wreaking havoc and causing pain and hate and hurt through this performance of book banning. Um, and just related to that, um, to put a book out there into the conversation. Next month, we have Naomi Alderman's book, The Future, coming out. And it very much relates to this phenomenon of social media feeding hate. The algorithm feeding you things that engage you are often things that create hate and how that machine of hate production um, ignites these people into action around hate rather than around positive um, or um, supportive efforts. Because if you care about, you know, the literature your children are reading, there is a positive way to go about addressing it. Find the books that you believe in that reflect the values you care about and get those into kids' hands. Put them, you know, donate them to kids throughout your community. There is a positive action that you can take rather than a negative action that causes so much hurt and, and destruction. So that's just my okay. thought on that. So <laughs> Ellen knows that I'm obsessed right now with this book called On Tyranny. Um, it's by a historian named Timothy Snyder. Um, it's not a perfect book, but it's a it's a really interesting, really tiny, slim book. And it's like basically um, 15 things to look for, be aware of um, uh, 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 how how countries sort of um, like lead towards authoritarianism. And um, there is a lot in that book that's relevant to this discussion. But one of the things in there is like be aware of um false emergencies be aware of something that is um is created to look like an emergency but isn't actually and that's like a way that authoritarianism can get a foothold and i feel like these these book challenges and bans are one of those things right it's it's not an emergency um but you if you have enough people with enough power telling you that it is then all of a sudden you're like oh my gosh it is Right. And and enough people, if they feel like that, then it creates this what we're in right now. Yeah. And I that kind of relates to something I wanted to ask because I'm looking at some of these books, right? So um trying to think what are some ones that have come up in Iowa recently? Like Looking for Alaska by John Green, for example. I had that book in my classroom library for years. Kids read that book for years. Why now <laughs> are we like, oh, this book is so horrible. We have to pull it off the shelf. And I think that's true for all this book banning. What do you what do you all think is the reason why all of a sudden you see like the hockey stick as you were describing it, Joyce? Like what happened that now, uh, Tanvi, I, I can see your reaction. I know you have lots to say. Um, but like, let's be real, like something's going on. Um, because this is different. And now all of a sudden we're concerned about books that we were never concerned about before that have been available to our kids for a long time. What do you think that is? Um, I'll share a part of an answer. And then I look forward to hearing what Tanvi has to say, because when she mentioned the book that she's been reading that book, I've looked through it and I feel like it's the playbook right now. It's just mind blowing. What we're seeing a lot in our country right now is an acceptance of discrimination, an acceptance of hatred. Um, 
and an acceptance of poor behavior with a lack of dialogue. And it's just become critical to um, also, as Tanvi said, instead of making it the emergency, find ways to de-escalate and approach it. And as librarians, we have to have, you know, we have to follow the law. We can't, our board members and as librarian directors, et cetera, we can't just make up rules. We have to do everything within the First Amendment and our state, local, and federal law. And that includes upholding the First Amendment. And that's another area where part of the problem right now is we see lots of challenges to government authority and the law, lots of challenges to our Constitution and to the First Amendment. And when you see people uh, you know, spreading that fire that they can just disregard that, it all spreads up. Um, and I've been impressed that people who were part of this anti-censorship movement in the 80s, um, authors, librarians, are coming back and saying, no, no way, not on my watch. You have Judy Bloom saying, okay, my book's been on your shelf forever. It's been challenged since day one. It's happening again. I'm not going to sit back. You have people like Roby Harris, who wrote, uh, she writes sex ed books for kids between like ages five and 15. Her book, It's Not the Store, is back on the chopping block. Instead of sitting back and saying, oh man, <laughs> this sucks, not again, she released a new edition. She updated it and put out the new edition, said, here you go. Um, I'm seeing. Librarian Pat Scales was one of the first educators and librarians to write a book and have conversations with parents about discussing some of these challenged and hard books. So she's another one where next month in time for Banned Books Week, she's releasing her updated edition, Teaching Banned Books, 32 Guides for Children and Teens. Um, so while there is this horrible resurgence of censorship, I've seen people respond in such productive ways. And it's not only our generation, but it's the people that fought it in the 80s saying, here we are, we're coming back and we're not going to let this pass. Okay, so my theory is, <laughs> so there's this book, um, we have it here at Dog-Eared called Begin Again. Um, the author's name is escaping me right now, but it's a nonfiction book. Um, the author is a professor at Princeton University. And it's kind of a like a love letter to James Baldwin. And it's, you know, how do you read Baldwin and understand Baldwin's life um, in relationship to just current events happening over the past few years in the United States? Um, and and one of the arguments that he makes, which is a pretty common argument that you hear in other places, too, is that basically any time throughout history when um, people from marginalized communities, so in this case, specifically um, black people, exert their power um, and their voice and demand rights. Um, and now currently you also see it with queer people, particularly trans people, um, the dominant 
population will respond with violence. Um, there may be a short time when there's like a, yeah, let's have a dialogue about, you know, making sure that we live in an equitable society, but eventually it will just resort to, um, actually, no, <laughs> you know, um, some people have power and some people do not. Um, and that's the way it should remain. Um, and so I feel like we're in one of those moments right now. And these challenges and these bans are their own form of violence that is being exerted upon um, upon people who are trying to access information um, in libraries and in schools. Um, and, you know, the past few years have been, you know, we had Black Lives Matter, we've had um, trans people becoming increasingly vocal about um, their rights. Um, and this is sort of the backlash now that we're in. Yeah, it does not seem um, to be a coincidence that, you know, if you look at lists of books that are coming out that are being banned or the types of legislation that, you know, is being proposed, we're really about, we're targeting um, books by and about um, people of color and queer people. And that, so we just got to name it, what it, call it what it is, you know, it is, um, this book banning is a function of racism. It is a function of homophobia, transphobia, all of those things. From um, your perspective, Joyce, what do you think is the long-term impact of book challenges? So say we, we ride this wave um, for a couple of years, maybe it dies down, but what are like the long-term impacts of these types of, of efforts? There are so many. Um so many i'm going to share i'll keep it short but a personal experience so i grew up in southwest michigan it's the bible belts of the midwest um in a mid-sized suburb and uh i'm queer and i had sort of figured that out by around fourth grade and I went in the Portage Public Library and they had one of those old school 1970s sort of plastic round things with all the paperbacks in the teen area. And I found one book that had gay characters in it. It just alluded to it. It wasn't even, you know, like, like you said with the book with the two insects that weren't married. It, um, but I read, I never checked it out absolutely did not um but i read that book over and over and over um i am thankful today as someone as old as the freedom to read foundation that some librarian purchased that book that it was available to me and i could see that i was not alone i was not the only kid in portage michigan or the only person in the world feeling these feelings. And if, as we start to see this chilling effect, if librarians don't feel comfortable buying these books, if educators don't feel comfortable talking about these topics, then we see a generation of young children of color and LGBTQ and other minorities, people who are economically challenged, um, the more we limit, the less people can see their lived experience and the more challenged and internally they'll be struggling as they become young adults and adults. And I've seen um, a couple of 
uh, responses. There's a group, First Books, um, and they recently led the, I'm looking at the title here, the Diverse Books Impact Study. This is going to be released uh, in the next month or so, so please keep an eye open for um, First Books, Diverse Books Impact Study, because they have studied a group of kids um, having access to materials and then not, and then what is the impact of that? How does it affect people? So I'm going to be interested to learn more about that, but in the meantime, as much as possible, we have to advocate for keeping access. When I hear you say that, talking about being a fourth grader in your town and knowing you aren't the only one, I think of all the medical and psychological studies we have that talk about connection um, and loneliness, the juxtaposition of the two, that loneliness and lack of connection has such a huge impact on longevity, medical uh, phenomenon, heart health, obesity. Um, and, I, you know, as I said, longevity, not only does it affect how a child feels about themselves, but would also have long-term uh, physical impact health impact on them, not seeing themselves or seeing connection um, to others who have similar experiences. Well, in suicide statistics. Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. And I have to wonder too, like how it must feel if you're, especially if you're a young person and you're um, figuring this stuff out and you see people raising hell about a book that's reflecting you what message are we sending those kids like oh, there's you're inappropriate there's something that's not okay with you like your experience is it's going to damage other people How, that's a horrible message to send to to any young person um and i have to wonder like how do we even measure um the toll that that's going to take on young people. Yeah, I'm, I'm thankful daily that my sons each have teachers. Uh, so I have two sons, one in elementary and one in middle school. And at our local high school, we have people standing up every month and reading passages from books they don't like and talking about how sinful and harmful this is. And I'm just thankful that my sons have friends and teachers and others in our community who reflect for them that, yeah, you're cool, your family's fine, because otherwise they're hearing all of this. So, yeah, there, there certainly is an impact. Um, I think what you're you're getting to, and I apologize, Ella, if I'm kind of jumping the gun with this question, but what countermeasures can that okay so at, let's say average citizens are getting pulled into the you know these deep dark holes of well-organized well-funded groups that want to pull books and shame kids and schools and teachers what are countermeasures that everyday citizens can take to 
to uh, balance out that attack on children. Um, what can we do to to have a positive impact if they are hearing this message um, elsewhere? Organize and advocate. Um, get get as grassroots powerful as the people bringing on these challenges. Um, Unite Against Book Bans is a campaign that was created a little over a year ago because as librarians and library staff at ALA, we realized the, the school librarian should not have to shoulder this, especially if they may feel like they're going to lose their job if they don't pull the books. And that's it's time for community and supportive people to step in. So through Unite Against Book Bans, there's a challenge toolkit and the talking points aren't ones that Tanvi would use or I would use to talk to a patron who's brought a challenge. They're talking points that are short, uh, common sense, nonpartisan for standing up at a board meeting or another meeting and sharing them. Um, through Unite Against Book Bans, if you enter your zip code, if there's a situation for a librarian saying, I'm in this state, in this county, and I need help, I need people to show up, we can look through those uh, zip codes and invite people from that area to show up at a meeting to share the situation, if the director wants that. Um, we work with library staff, educators, and something that, uh, so to respond to the folks showing up at our high school, a group of area residents started an informal email list, and we have a Google calendar and people sign up to show up at every school board meeting. That way we always know, A, no one's getting burned out. There's always someone there, hopefully more people than others have showing up. And if it's not necessary that night to speak, they don't. But if it is, they sign up to speak and have their comments in hand. And it's sort of a grassroots coordinated way to combat that. And I would say for people to look up uniteagainstbookbans.org and familiarize him or herself with some statements just ahead of time. Oh, I love my library because this. Oh, it's, you know, my right to choose for me and my family, but not what you can choose for your kid or just to get that form of advocacy out there. Um, and to be familiar with the law, to be familiar with what our public libraries are. It's a limited public forum for one purpose, and that's to share information. And you can't violate someone's First Amendment right. Yeah, that means you also have the right to go in and say, here, here's a challenge report form. I've read it. I've filled it out. I don't think this belongs there. That's a right too. So, so, so oh, go ahead, Tom, um, Tavi. <laughs> um, 
So in On Tyranny, my favorite book right now, <laughs> um, one of the one of the things that um, he advises in that book is um, choose an institution that you care about and defend it. And so, you know, his examples are like journalism, the courts, whatever. Um, but I think, you know, the public library and your local school district. Um, and I think really an important part of that is um, you know, stepping up when the challenge occurs, but also all the time, just always sharing the story of those institutions constantly, right? Um, this is why I love my public library. This is why the public library is so amazing. And nothing bad has to be happening, but you're already shaping the perception of that institution. And in that way, you're already working to protect it um, before that ever happens. I think one of the you know, kind of long-term impacts of of um, all of this organized efforts to pull materials out of libraries. Um, so one of the things that you often hear is if a book is pulled from a school is like, well, then kids can get it at the public library. And if it's pulled from the public library, then it's, well, kids can get it at the bookstore or they can go online. And we know that's not true, right? Because not everyone has access to all of those things. But I think part of what makes that so dangerous is that we're engaging in all of these like little erosions that make the larger erosion um, harder to see, right? So like in, you know, normal, quote unquote, normal times, if someone were to say, I think we should defund libraries, I think we should just get rid of public libraries. Everyone would be like, what? That's why, like, that's bonkers. Why would you say such a thing? But when you allow these restrictions to happen really slowly oh it's just a book here or it's just a program there um you don't really see that actually over a long period of time something really large has happened and and those little restrictions then make it easier to continue censoring and then it makes it easier to get to a point where you're saying maybe we should vote to defund the library which is actually happening like that's happening in our country right now um, maybe we should get rid of all of our board members and install board members who um, are in favor of restricting everything that a library disseminates. Um, and that's pretty scary. I think it erodes faith in the institution. It erodes people's ability to use the institution and it erodes the institution's ability to inform people and connect people. Um, and that seems like such a big thing, but it's like already happening now. Um, and so I think, you know, when someone says, oh, well, it's just one book, it's okay, because there's all these other books, like, actually, no, like, let, let's not let this advance past that. So in On Tyranny, one of the things that he says is do not obey in advance, right? And I think that's, like, I try to, I try to wake up with that thought every morning, like, I will not obey in advance, I will not give in now. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> I'm thankful you're reading that book and I'm loving, <laughs> loving learning more about it and amen to all of that. I mean, okay. In this last week, bomb threats to libraries are not okay. Firing directors because they refuse to pull entire topics from their shelves is not okay in defunding libraries 
just literally defunding them, meaning that people in an area will not have access to a public library is not okay. And all of those things are happening this week. It, it is crazy. And uh, I, Tanvi, I'm so glad that you, you know, sort of gave us that lens that that erosion, even though it might be one bomb threat here, just from a social media urging or whatever, and one librarian, it doesn't seem like that's an odd thing. Well, yeah, people hiring fire librarians all the time. But when you look at that picture, it's terrifying and upsetting and sad. I think of how we came to the voucher bill in the state of Iowa. It's that similar micro erosion. And now here we're defunding public schools by allowing vouchers. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's happening. Every little erosion to investment and value in our public institutions does result in something drastic eventually. So it sounds like fight organization with organization. I think where it gets a little tricky is when you've got book banning and censorship that has now been like written into law. So like in the state of Iowa, it's illegal for a book depicting a sex act to live in a high school at all. Um, it's illegal for, well, kind of illegal because the Department of Ed will not give any guidance, so we don't really know. Um, but anything dealing with gender identity or sexual identity um, through eighth grade. Um, so it's like what one of the things, and Tommy, you and I have talked about this, and, and actually we were talking about it, uh, you were telling me about on tyranny. And what we're seeing happen um, around the state is school districts are sort of overshooting the law. They're removing anything that they think might be in violation or might come under fire or might be controversial. Um, so instead of just looking at the law, looking at books individually, and God knows they don't have the time to do that, but um, and saying, I can, I know for sure that this book is a violation, I'm going to pull it. Instead, they're pulling anything they think. And the problem with that is that they're just saying, okay, take all our books. We're just like, <laughs> like uh, we're, it's that fear. Um, and so what resources exist for librarians, school librarians, educators um, who are trying to comply with the law um, to give them some support and saying, you know, you don't have to like, you know, go overboard here. Like um, there are there are support and resources that you have if you're trying to obey the law, but you find yourself in some hot water. Yeah, I have a I have a handful to note. And regarding the Department of Ed, uh, they are going to start, um, they've started a program that they're rolling out um, related to censorship where um, they're realizing that this may violate students' First or Fourteenth Amendment rights. And they're starting a program nationally where people can report censorship. If materials have been removed or a student doesn't have access, they can report that to the Department of Education. I'm going to be learning more about that next week through a webinar with them uh, that they're leading um, 
but yeah, so that's kind of a more to come. As far as support and organizations, there are a few that I want to mention. First, um, know your immediate support. If, if you are uh, part of a union, if your school is part of a union and you're a teacher or a librarian, um, media specialist, find out if your union rep is supportive. Then also look, if, determine whether your principal, superintendent, et cetera, are supportive. Um, look to the ACLU in your region. Each ACLU has a regional office. And if there's a student or a family willing to say not having access to this material has an effect on us, it's to the point where now you might be looking at some people bringing a suit. Um, the other thing I would note is that if you're talking about curriculum, the National Council of Teachers of English is wonderful and they have an office for intellectual freedom. So librarians, please reach out to the ALA Office for Intellectual Freedom. I hate the fact that our reporting tool has gone from, oh, is it a book, uh, you know, a videotape, a book on tape, a, a magazine. Now we're including, is this a hate crime? Is this a challenge to a program? Is this a challenge to a display? Basically anything, please report it. And if you want help, there's a space on that reporting tool for you to say, I'd like someone to reach out to me and I'd like to work with someone uh, through ALA. Um, as I mentioned, NCTE. We often work in conjunction with the National Coalition Against Censorship and the Freedom to Read Foundation is now working on at least three cases throughout the country with either individuals in a town in conjunction with someone like NCAC. Um, so there's a point where, yes, community advocacy is necessary and you wanna keep up that pressure at the local level, but you may need to go to the next step. And if a librarian is having, is experiencing discrimination in the workplace, or if a librarian's experiencing their job being threatened due to their defense of intellectual freedom, there's a separate fund out there called the Merit Fund, M-E-R-R-I-T-T fund.org. And librarians can apply for a grant where they, and, and we don't ever ask anyone to repay it. It's just, if down the road they can pay it forward, great. Um, but they can get funding to secure an attorney. They can get funding to help cover medical expenses like their COBRA or their living expenses for a month. Um, and if they need the grant to continue, they can reapply. There's nothing that says you can't apply more than once. Um, so there are resources and tools out there if you've gotten to that level. But the number one thing for people to know is you're absolutely not alone. Um, librarians, you know, in Ames are experiencing this and librarians in New York City and librarians in Chicago and in rural Indiana and Michigan. And you're not alone 
and there are groups that we can connect you with and provide support. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing all of those resources. Um, I think it's important for, I think sometimes it's easy to feel like um, we're scattered and we're like maybe alone and um, have limited power to change the situation. Um, but it sounds like actually there's a pretty big network um, that someone who's concerned about this could tap into. All right. Well, thanks so much for being here with us today, Joyce um, and Tanvi. Any um, parting thoughts that you would want to leave our listeners with? I want to hear a little bit about the group that Tanvi has started, because I think that's amazing. And I wanted to learn about that. Are, are you, do we have time for a quick? Of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it is amazing. <laughs> and also, you know, like this is, um, Tanvi's uh, organization is something that uh, could be replicated um, and she's and and yeah. uh, she can provide those resources to you and this is a great way to um fight back against some of these efforts yeah well so first i want to say before I, I talk about that um i really like i really hope people just shower love on their institutions um the more you love your local library the better prepared they will be to handle a challenge if it comes up because they will know, right? Like psychologically, emotionally, you know, people have my back. Um, so love your local library. Um, and then Joyce, my organization is called Good Books Young Troublemakers. It's a book club that I started here at Dog Eared Books um, over two years ago, so two and a half years ago. Um, and it's uh, for middle schoolers and it uses middle grade books to help kids move from empathy into allyship action. Um, and so we use stories to get kids to actually practice allyship um, based on the idea that allyship is a skill that you can practice and strengthen over time, just like any other skill. So like, I like to think of it as like a sport. Um, you could theoretically get up and play baseball, having never played baseball before, but A, you probably wouldn't be that good at it. Um, and B, you potentially could harm yourself or harm another person. Um, but the more you practice it um, in a space that's developed for that practice, um, the better you will be at it and the less harm you will cause to someone else or to yourself. Um, and so, yeah, my kids have been doing it for over two years and it's really remarkable um, the way that they view allyship um, in as, as something that they are capable of engaging in confidently and, and thoughtfully and in service of other people rather than in service of their own ego. Um, so my dream is that I can launch it as a national nonprofit and then um, we can have chapters around the country and other communities. I want to partner with you on that. Uh yeah, please. <laughs> Let's chat. I would love that. Tommy, tell her about the progress you've made thus far in growing mm -hmm. it outside of her bookstore, because it's not just in theory anymore. Um, mm -hmm. You have like, tell her about the beta sites and the plan for like the next, you know, six months to a year. 
Because it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, I've got an application in with the IRS, so hopefully it will get nonprofit status at some point. Um, but in the meantime, um, I have some beta testers around the country um, who will launch their own chapters um, starting January 2024, and they will do that for six months and will engage kind of in a process of um just feedback, letting me know if this is a model that is replicable in their communities. Um, and they're they're really different, very different types of communities. So some are cities, some are, um, one is actually in very, very, very rural conservative Iowa um, at a public library. So to see if this model works across a variety of locations with a variety of populations. Um, and then ideally, it will launch as an organization that anyone can participate in starting in, um, I think it's July, July 2024. Wow, congratulations. And Thank I you. I want to keep learning more. So please be in touch with me. I and will. And Amanda and Ellen, it says a lot about the two of you that you're growing programs like this in your store and that you're hosting a podcast like this. And it's just an absolute pleasure to speak with the three of you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank, thank you, you and thank for thank you for your efforts um, and the Freedom to Read Foundation's efforts, uh, especially with what we're facing now. It's so as booksellers, librarians, former teacher, like parents, you know, we are so appreciative knowing that there are people like you and foundations um, like yours that are fighting the good fight. And so, these are challenging times, but um, I have. Uh, faith in the in the people who are fighting on the right side of it. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Popping Off with Dog-Eared Books. Be sure to like, subscribe, and comment if you enjoyed this. And if you know of someone we should interview on a future Popping Off, DM us in our social media.